Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Gola. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and cookbook author. And I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and a certified specialist of wine. Hi, what's up? Hi, Katie. I'm so excited because we're back in the studio in Rome and we are actually going to get to record a whole bunch of new episodes for our wonderful audience, which is growing by the minute. We have so many new patrons. In fact, at the tail of this episode, you'll hear our new outro that thanks everyone once again and reminds you that you get to be part of not just a podcast, but a whole mondo goloso. If a very become, exclusive club. A very exclusive club if you become a patron on patreon.com backslash golapod. And uh, with our time together in Italy, we are returning to some movement finally. It's been a weird year. We came back together to get Gola on the road once more last summer and then we did a little bit more traveling and exciting eating and drinking together with my students in the fall program for Dartmouth College. But uh, then the winter and the last couple months have been tricky again. So we're both getting geared up for a new season of tours and travel. And we were thinking about uh, sharing with our wonderful listeners some of our favorite cities and how we visit them and eat and drink our way through them. That's right. And on the Gola on the Road subject, that's the name of our forthcoming television show. I know everyone's sitting on pins and needles (laughs) to see it. Um, And that's going to be released by mydestination.tv imminently. I don't have a date for you. I will let you know. So will Danielle follow us on the social meds and you'll be the first with the info. Yes. Another reason to become a patron, by the way, because that stuff goes directly to your inbox if you are on our mailing list there. You won't miss a thing. (laughs) Okay, so we in the Gola on the Road spirit, uh, married with our love for travel, our delight in being water adjacent, (laughs) we are going to explore a very fun Flirty. No, it's not flirty at all. <laughs> Fun, unusual, yeah, very strange, like mm. profoundly mm. strange in, in a great way. Gritty in its own way, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. And it's called Venezia, guys. Ever heard of it? Ever heard of it? And I'm not talking California. <laughs> Although, you know, I love both Venices equally. But there are more tacos in one. Yeah. I will let you <laughs> decide which based on your experience. Uh, well, you know, Katie, you've been going to Venice a lot lately for various collaborations. And I lived on the island of San Giorgio several years. So I, it seems like not that long ago, but I actually had to do the math and figured out it was kind of much longer ago than I wished to be true. Um, and, and since then have spent quite a lot of time in Venice for research. And, um, 
of course, to anyone listening, no matter how many Gola episodes they're in for or how much Italian travel they've done in their lives, the idea of Venice being a place to visit in Italy is so obvious as to be glaringly ridiculous. And yet. (laughs) And yet. And you know how I don't love the obvious. Right. But I really love Venice. Um, And you know from spending time in San Giorgio, which Mm -hmm. is this uh, beautiful little island opposite, you can't really call it mainland Venice, but like a cluster of islands that you consider Venice when you think about it. And we'll sort Mm -hmm. of dig into that. Um, I've been spending a lot of time there too uh, for personal reasons and also for researching my forthcoming cookbook, Food of the Italian Islands. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's only after you kind of live day to day, shop for produce, uh, become a regular at a cafe or bar that the very opaque culture of Venice uh, starts to appear. You start understanding a little Venetian dialect. You realize it is the most vulgar and perverted dialect of them all. Deeply. It is, guys, truly next level. I, we're not going to really get into it because my mother listens. I know, right? There but it's like can't be repeated here. Yeah, <laughs> it's like when you start to hear the dialect phrases, you're like, okay, now I understand you guys in a new way. Y'all are foul, yeah. but I love you. <laughs> you do love it, yeah. Um, so uh, let's kind of like break it down. I would actually recommend you're probably listening to this pod on your cellular phone, mm-hmm. um, so, well, obviously smartphone, mm-hmm. and uh, or maybe on your computer. I would just like Google a map of Venice so you can see what we mean when we say Venice. Um, it is a cluster of islands connected by scores of bridges, um, and those islands are broken up into sections called Sestieri, um, among them Canareggio, which is a really fun one known for its wine bars. There's Castello, um, which is where a lot of the Biennale, uh, the biannual like sort of arts installations take place. There's Dorso Duro, which has a really fun uh, sort of lagoon side vibe and uh, mm-hmm. hashtag spritz life. Um, <laughs> and then you've got all these other island, well, sometimes single islands and mm-hmm. sometimes islands connected to each other, as in the case of Murano, um, that form uh, a much wider uh, Venetian lagoon society. So I think we should kind of talk about both since most people go to Venice, those sestieri that are yeah. all connected and then mm-hmm. hop on a uh, on a boat to visit Murano or Mozorbo or Pellestrina um, or Torcello, mm-hmm. or, you know, the list goes on. Yeah. But in this way, we're going to give you a nice little panorama of what the city's city and its surrounding islands are all about. And what types of foods and experiences, and especially drinks, you can find. Yeah, well, uh, to your point, Katie, one of the things that maybe people don't know about Venice if they haven't visited before is that, like so many of the places that we talk about or the um, regional or sub-regional cuisines we talk about, it's wildly different from anything that you've experienced in the U.S. It's pretty rare to have access to anything that mirrors the real Venetian gastro and gastronomic culture outside of Venice, even within Italy, it's pretty unusual. There are a handful of places. I think a new, very, very recently, for example, in Rome, a new place in the Venetian baccaro or small bar with uh, bites like tapa style uh, opened up and you'll see those here and there, but they're few and far between. And uh, in the U.S., uh, I, they're also very, very rare. So, 
if you haven't been, um, you have you have actually kind of a lot of ground to cover, not to start getting into punning with the Laguna here, but um, because Venetian food and beverage is unlike anything on the terraferma, as they will refer to the rest of the Italian peninsula. And it is also an absolute riot of cultural uh, confusion and diffusion in, in a fantastic way, of course. Yeah. I mean, when you're in Venice, you're going to encounter food in a number of ways. Yeah. Um, most people who have spent some time in, in Italy sort of approach Venice thinking that they're going to go to a trattoria and sit down and have a full meal. And you can certainly do that. And there are really excellent places to do that. Among my favorites are Vini da Gigio, Ignazio, mm-hmm. Alcovo, and Ale Testiere. And those are actually like really, really prohibitively expensive for many tourists. Yeah. And even with a local discount, quite prohibitive for locals. So that's not the norm. You know, a, a Venetian ritual that you can easily tap into as a visitor um, is a little baccaro tour, chiquetando. There are all these uh, there are all these nouns and verbs and all sorts of things attached to this ritual that starts quite early in the morning. Um, you can go to a place like Alarco near the Rialto market, and at seven in the morning or eight in the morning, already start to have uh, some classic Venetian bites standing up with some booze because you know what? It's damp there. Mm. And you know what warms your bones? Three drinks before 9 (laughs) a.m. The Venetians cracked the code on this. And so, you know, we might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves or maybe not. But let's talk about this Baccaro situation and the chiquetti, so the bar genre and the snacks that you might encounter there. And by the way, if you're looking for sort of an analog, I like to compare the uh, chiquetti culture to um, the the Basque pinchos yeah. culture. Mm-hmm. It's it's really, really similar. And, you know, maybe that's not the most appropriate uh, comparison, but I can't break myself of it because the, the Venetian dialect is often like pronounced the way that you would pronounce Spanish, yeah. you know, which, which like, I'm like, guys, are you just Spanish? Like, what's happening? They're like, we're not Spanish. <laughs> we're our own thing. It's but the there's got to be something. <laughs> global South, it's everywhere. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I actually, I mean, I think that's a, it's at least, if uh, if nothing else, a useful analog, even if uh, the path by which those two cultures are related is a little more complicated than the direct line. And uh, Katie, you're pointing out that it's about small glasses and small small bites, and that I think is the first kind of area of interest. So we have I know another episode that our fans love, and that is available only to patrons and those of you who are part of our Golozo community on uh, in the back episodes on our website. Um, that uh, in which we described the kind of cadence and structure of an Italian meal and why it's done that way. And so you get to Venice and all the rule, all those rules are out the window, as you point out, because in fact, most people aren't sitting down for a meal that has that kind of uh, full structure, that careful progression, that beginning, middle and end kind of narrative. Instead, it is an all day greasing routine that in some ways, I think also 
runs parallel to the way the city moves, right? Mm -hmm. Um, People kind of flow. There's there's a fluidity to everything about Venice and uh, the literal sense of the water everywhere and in terms of how people uh, live the city and how they structure their days. Absolutely. And you see it, you know, if let's say you land in Venice and you're quite jet lagged and you're up at at five in the morning, you're not going to be the only person, Right, right? There are a lot of people who work on the water. They are doing deliveries. They are collecting trash. They are Uh, coming back from fishing. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of movement very early in the morning Mm -hmm. and many people are sort of finishing their day Mm -hmm. in the morning. So it's logical that, uh, you know, in other parts of Italy where you might be having a cornetto and a cappuccino instead in Venice, someone is having uh, like a delicious little sandwich Mm -hmm. at Al Merca Mm -hmm. in the Rialto market with a small glass of wine mm-hmm. or even a spritz. Yeah. Even a red bitter liqueur based mm-hmm. low alcohol by volume drink in the morning is not a foreign concept. Now, as soon as you go to the neighboring region, then that's not normal, mm-hmm. right? That's that's no longer part of uh, the, the the sort of day drinking culture that starts at, at 7 a.m. Yeah. is not a thing elsewhere, yeah. but it certainly does define the social rituals of uh, the Venetian lagoon, especially Venice proper. Mm-hmm. Um, so... We've got people working on the water, people working near the water, uh, a kind of society that has always been inundated, to use another you know, water pun, <laughs> yeah. um, with visitors, whether they're dignitaries coming from the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. or uh, grand tourists or today, you know, tourists from all over the world, especially from Europe um, who come year round, yeah. uh, sometimes even driving, parking at Piazzale Roma mm-hmm. and then getting, you know, uh, hitting the... the well, not quite pavement, but hitting yeah. the bridges and yeah. and flagstones, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and exploring the city. So there is this like, there is this need to just go get a drink with someone who you know, yeah. <laughs> because so many of the people that you see and encounter every day are strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're visitors, and often they're gawking and taking pictures while you're trying to sling cuttlefish yeah. um, or soft shell crabs or. Uh, writhing scampi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> scampi. I said it with the uh, a jersey the accent. Jersey. You got full jersey on yeah. that. I totally heard it. <laughs> Never uh, go full jersey. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad that you're getting into the specific foods because I'm sure everybody is excited to get a little more serious about what those bites just might be. And one thing that makes Venice a little bit different from some of the other islands or uh, water adjacent places that we've talked about and that you've been visiting with attention for your uh, new book project is the fact that the ingredients on which their cuisine is based are firmly of the sea in a way that, for example, in Sicily actually isn't the case, right? And in a lot of the uh, rest of the Italian South isn't the case, even if fish is readily available, it's seen as a product that is of value to an external market, first and foremost, and then beyond that. In Venice, it's all fish all the time, basically. Um, yes. With obviously, you know, some notable exceptions. Within we cannot but, forget yeah. about the calf's liver. Right. That is yeah. called fegato la veneziana, right. and it is bomb. Yeah. Right. So, and just as Venetian as any seafood. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So you so you have some of those kind of standout dishes, but when you're talking about the little bites that people are working through, they're going to be largely characterized by having some kind of a fish product on them and incorporating those sweet and sour flavors that just 
alert you immediately to the long-term international, to use an anachronistic word, exchange in a maritime republic. Venice becomes a very, very important city in the mid to high Renaissance. As you mentioned, Katie, it has a very a strong relationship with the Near and Middle East. In fact, in some ways, stronger with the uh, the East than with certainly the West or the North. And it is, as a result of that, a place that has flavors that jump out at you as different from what you would taste other places on the peninsula and reminiscent of combinations that are not and scare quotes everywhere, not Italian, because of course, being a nation is Italian, but at the same time, it isn't. And there's good reason why there's a hard line there. Venice was a republic. It was, it had a very distinctive and uh, purposely exclusive identity. And uh, it didn't always have a really strong exchange culturally with the rest of the peninsula, while it did instead perhaps lean on other areas. Absolutely. And, you know, as you're Speaking about these themes, the most iconic, perhaps, of all Venetian dishes is sardine saor, sardines that are, you know, lightly fried and then marinated with vinegar um, and then really soft uh, onions, pine nuts, raisins. And those are served sometimes just on a plate, Mm -hmm. sometimes draped over a cube of polenta or a sort of rectangular block of polenta. Um, You also find uh, gamberi in saor. Mm -hmm. So uh, prawns or shrimp that have been given that same treatment. Um, and these are consumed unglamorously standing up at a counter mm-hmm. or outside at some sort of place where you can lean your lean your plate. Right. Um, this is the sort of cicchetti ritual. Mm-hmm. You can also find them on the classic Venetian mixed antipasto. Mm-hmm. Every single freaking place, like zero yeah. exceptions, <laughs> serves this mixed antipasto dish at in a trattoria setting, I should say, where you get little bites that would normally be consumed standing up. So that might be a grilled, a single grilled baby cuttlefish, Mm -hmm. um, the sarde or uh, gambrian saor, uh, a sort of um, bacala, mantecato, sort of like whipped um, cod uh, spread. Um, I can never remember the name for capazante. It just came to me. Scallops on the half shell. (laughs) Damn. I they're know. some of my favorite things to eat, and I don't know what they're called in English. I, I, that, for some, that one is always the same for me. I've, I always forget the translation in both directions for yeah, some reason. It's yeah. hard. It's hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, having having vocabulary is really challenging. <laughs> um, and then you know, little uh, seasonal things like soft shell crabs uh, that might be you know floured or sort of battered and and fried. Um, those are the things you're going to find from the lagoon on your plate, except for. Cod's not from the lagoon. It's coming from somewhere else, but it's still consumed in the lagoon. So there. Um, and uh, and that's something that sort of straddles the seated trattoria experience and the chiquetti experience. Um, I recently went on a really fun baccaro tour oh, nice. uh, led by my Venetian friends um, for, well, not for Carnival because Carnival... Uh, wasn't really celebrated the way that it, that it typically was because of, uh, you know, pandemic uh, issues. Yeah. No one felt really, you know, chill having a big party. Right. Um, so we went out and just grazed on things all over town, starting mm-hmm. at Almerca for little sandwiches. This mm-hmm. is right next to the Rialto Market and the Herboria. And then heading to get some stewed octopus. Mm-hmm. We went to the Bacala stand mm-hmm. um, and got some 
uh, whipped bacala served with these very brittle, um, almost grissini breadstick-like things, busole. Then our alarco, we really went ham at alarco. <laughs> And that's just a place that you does crostini. Yeah. yeah, crostini. Well, they're, they're chiquetti, but yeah. just to give you a sense, like on little toasts, mm-hmm. um, some cured uh, cured fish fillets, almost like a um, uh, sashimi type situation, mm-hmm. all sorts of like tuna salad type things, stuff that adds a little bit more flavor to uh, a single fish ingredient. And then, of course, the whole time you're publicly drinking yeah. because in Venice, if it is, you know, it's five o'clock somewhere is the (laughs) is the mantra. Um, And, uh, you know, drinking bottles of Prosecco or other wines from an area that's collectively called the Triveneto, which is that Mm -hmm. northeastern part of Italy that has just a a ton of uh, especially white wine production. That's the custom for Venetians. You know, it's totally normal to go out and have a little crawl through your favorite places. You run into friends, you run into your aunt, she treats you to some vino. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's such a, it's such a cool and fun experience that you can recreate just by doing exactly what I just said. So rewind, take notes. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and the good thing is that it's one of it's one of the things that unites local Venetian culture with tourist culture, right? It's as much as there are some places that are a little bit more heavily touristed than others um, when it comes to a baccaro or one of these small bars that serves these little bites and small or short pours of wine traditionally. It's a place that that will always naturally be as welcoming to both groups because the point is that you don't spend a ton of time there. Um, or you might, but it would be sort of in passaggio during the day. So like the people who work nearby might come in in the morning for 20 minutes and then pass by again a little bit later and then before they go home from work. Um, and anyone who's there is just having uh, a bite and a sip, basically. So it's very kind of transient and a lot of kind of dynamic movement. And everything is, as you said, designed to be enjoyed kind of quickly and easily, but you can also go nuts with your friends and create a mountain of food and everybody hangs out and just makes a mess of it. Yeah. And the the most fun thing is like improvising seating or improvising yeah. a place to balance your plate <laughs> of chiquetti and your glass of uh, whatever you happen to be drinking. We mentioned the ombra sitch. No, and I was just about to say, we've, we've been really like, burying the lead here by saying that uh, Venice is all about drinking and then not actually talking about the drinking. So the ombra that Katie's talking about is a, well, let's step back from this. Okay. Um, it's a heavy drinking city because it's port city. And as you mentioned, Katie, it's also a very damp and mostly cold place, except for the, a few weeks in the summer where it's violently hot. So it's like, it's it's pretty uncomfortable weather in Venice. That's sort of the rule overall. You and, can't tell, though, if the heat is from the sun or mosquito bites. Yeah, so it's like, there's, there's, a, there's a short stretch in the summer where it's violently hot humid and deeply uncomfortable for that reason. And then the switch flips and you get into a time where even on a day where it's pretty warm and sunny because of all the humidity, as soon as you lose that sunlight, it gets really, really chilly. So um, between that, between the um, culture of fishing and uh, very long days or 
or alternatively long nights of work in kind of quiet and isolating situations and series of other cultural realities, people have a tendency to work alcohol into their diet uh, all day long and all evening long. And uh, the way that they do that and keep some kind of balance, hopefully, is by having small drinks that tend to be on the lower uh, ABV side. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, I know. Katie's laughing you know, at me as I'm saying it. No, yeah. As you were saying that, I was just mm-hmm. thinking like a friend of mine, uh, a, friend, a friend of mine and I were chatting um, on St. Patrick's Day, which mm-hmm. is like all of Italy has <laughs> Irish pubs, right? So yeah. there are regulars at these Irish pubs who are yeah. locals. And if you're a local in an Irish pub, you celebrate St. Patrick's Day so hard. Yeah. And I was chatting to my friend Marco and he was telling me, he's like, I'm not going out this year because last year I threw up for two days afterwards. Oh, and I was like, I can't imagine another city where oh, no. that amount of no. public yeah. intoxication is even allowed, yeah. like by social norms. Yeah. But in Venice, it's truly a thing. Yeah. And I, uh, even I, yeah, I like my, I like my alcohol, Daniel. Yeah. Even I do. like, even yeah. I'm shocked sometimes. Yeah. Not to be fair, I have never thrown up on St. Patrick's Day this decade. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, it's it's such an interesting culture. And when you when you spend time with, you know, people in Venice who aren't just of like a certain noble social class, mm-hmm. who are working class people who do have like really chilly bones mm-hmm. from the magical but very damp climate, mm-hmm. you get it. You get it. And while we're on this subject of dampness, um, just bundle up with layers, do layers. And yeah. from uh, like mid-December until just before Carnival, yeah. plan your trip, go to Venice then. Oh, it's definitely. a freaking fantastic yeah. time to be there. Yeah. And there's nothing more magical than waking up to a foggy city. It's absolutely spectacular. Yeah, and it's also so... at night when the fog rolls in, it's it's just it feels magical and dangerous in this really it amazing feels way. Yeah, dangerous. Yeah. Sometimes so dangerous that the boats can't leave yeah, in the morning. Exactly. <laughs> but but no, it's I I love it that time of year. My probably my favorite time of year to go is like the week just before Christmas when it's not too cold yet and it's really foggy and people aren't visiting because it's too late in the season for them to come for better weather times and then uh, a little bit too early for them to be enjoying a holiday break. So it's it's really quiet and uh, it has all of those fantastic and weird characteristics you were describing. Yeah, it's also radicchio season up there. Yeah. And, right. you know, when you visit, when you visit Venice, whether you're wandering down an alley or hitting the Rialto market, you're going to see stalls that in the wintertime are so incredibly colorful. We don't have this in Rome where everything is green. I love it. It's beautiful. But you're like, how many shades of green are on this stall? I can count 200. Meanwhile, in Venice, you have the absolute rainbow of different radicchio varieties that are often named for the places where they're most identified, Mm -hmm. Chioggia, Treviso, these cities come to mind. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them aren't growing necessarily in those places, but instead on the island of Santerasmo, mm-hmm. which is uh, a short uh, Vaporetto ride from from the sort of heart of Venice. Mm-hmm. And it is very, very, very agricultural. Mm-hmm. This is where you're going to find the what I believe is with no evidence is the densest concentration of ape farm carts that you've ever seen. <laughs> this is how people get around. They say, oh, there are no, there are no cars in Venice. Yeah, they're 
not well there's Piazzale Romes cars but whatever but when you go to Santa Rosmo everyone's got a little ape uh and those are those adorable little like it looks like a one-seater but it's a two-seater cart with like the little trunk in the back it's just gorgeous um and there <laughs> love for these I love vehicles. them I love them and so there it's so cool because you know we talked about that the cuisine really being of the sea and we named some of those you know classics the local cuttlefish the soft shell crabs but when you're eating radicchio or artichokes or chard or spinach from Sondorosmo you also taste the sea they taste totally. briny because they are in an incredibly mineral rich soil with a lot of a lot of moisture from the lagoon itself yeah and i think that is something that you will also, just bringing us back to the things that you might drink alongside these different foods that are representative of the area, uh, something that you are going to really get to enjoy in the wine of Venice. And Venice has a not just big drinking culture, but actually a very kind of special and unique wine culture because of the practice of because of what it takes to uh, have grapes in a laguna and on soil like that. Um, there's an autochthonous grape called Durona di Venezia, di Venezia that uh, produces a wacky, briny white wine that's usually, in my experience, not particularly good, but it is cool to enjoy it at, in that space, in that place. And then these salty, watery things go hand in hand with the spritz culture you were talking about as well, right? Absolutely. So spritz is is a word that you've probably heard as part of, uh, or maybe like a party at your local Italian-themed bar, if you've got one of those, or at least in some sort of marketing that associates it with Aperol. And a spritz is a it's a low ABV aperitivo. It's something you drink before your meal to whet your appetite. Um, and historically in Italy, various cities were associated with specific red bitter liqueur based spritzes. So Padova was the Aperol capital. Milan was the Campari capital. And Venice was the select capital. And select is it looks a bit like Campari, but it's more deeply red orange, if that makes sense. And it used to be like the spritz ingredient. You would go to a, a baccaro or even to like one of the fancy hotel bars. If you ordered a spritz, it would come with select. And then Campari bought Aperol and blew out the Aperol brand on yeah. social media and YouTube and like every possible cocktail bar um, associating Aperol with the spritz in the minds of Italians and others everywhere. You can still find Select everywhere. They also sell it in little like shot size bottles at pretty much every single yeah. <laughs> commercial location. And a Select spritz um, is, uh, you know, like just a, a such a classic Venetian uh, beverage. There's also a ton of Prosecco consumption, yeah. um, both the still Prosecco uh, from Friuli, as well mm -hmm. as the bubbly Prosecco from uh, the mainland. But even, you know, Prosecco production has really expanded and boomed. So oh, now yeah. there's more Prosecco than there ever was. Mm -hmm. um, but you'll still find, uh, you know, lots and lots of crisp, briny white wines from mm -hmm. either just, you know, sort of northwest of Venice mm -hmm. or from the area around Trieste. So think, you know, Ribola, Malvasia, lots of those types of things. And then tons and tons and tons and tons. Of suave. Yeah. Garganiga. 
Garganiga. Don't roll your yeah. eyes because I'm not. I'm I not gotta just tell you something. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it. Look, there's a lot of bad. There's a lot of bad prosecco, but that's that has nothing to do with when it's made well, which it shouldn't exclude the possibility. I mean, yeah. this is gonna sound so basic. I don't know that many great suave producers, but there is a producer called Piero Pan. I believe they make quite a bit of wine <laughs> because they have yeah. distribution yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Now, there's an awesome, awesome place on the edge of Canareggio called Vini da Gigio. Mm-hmm. And their suave list is really, really good. Mm-hmm. And they have magnums of old vintages of the great oh, suaves, yeah. mm-hmm. including Piero Pan, yeah. all the wonderful crews. And Venice is a because it's a boozy city, there isn't always that sort of sophisticated approach to cellaring mm-hmm. white wines that are deserving yeah. of that. So you drink a lot of wine that's, you know, less than a year old or less than yeah. a year out of the cellar, I should say. And even in like posh places, you don't necessarily find vintages that are older than mm-hmm. 2019. So Vini da Gigio for me is my favorite place to drink wine in all of the city because they do have a very serious cellar. And oh, they, they mm-hmm. serve fresh wines too, but mm-hmm. they're also serving those age-worthy whites, properly kept. And that's just, it's so, so, so fun to drink too much of those. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, I am, as uh, as they say in Italian, a bianchista. So I think that white wines are more exciting and interesting than red wines on the whole, if I had to pick one. And old and ageable white wine is just the best. It's so fun to pop those bottles and see what happens or what has happened, I should say. And as you're mentioning things about the kind of culture behind that, it's also really interesting to see how Venice has despite in some ways not having a particularly sophisticated drinking culture, even if it's an an elaborate and um, intense one, it has simultaneously become a place where there's a lot of experimentation also. So I would say that Venice was ahead of the curve when it came to having wine bars or drinking establishments of any kind that did low quantity production, a low intervention Uh, wines, the kinds that you and I often seek out. And that started experimenting with cocktail culture and especially expanding their spirit selection early on. It's not everywhere, of course, and not every uh, iteration has been successful. But I would say certainly before Florence, for in, in my experience, Venice had some Uh, interesting stuff going on because there was room for that and because people kind of flit in and out of bars all day and were looking for a variety of options. And uh, to your point, you might have in the same wine bar people who are looking for a two euro spritz. That's the absolute bare basics or people who are looking for old vintages of crew autochthonous local grapes, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it makes sense that uh, cocktail culture would thrive in Venice before elsewhere because spritz already existed as a concept, whereas it had to be introduced to Rome or Naples right, right. or Palermo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it takes time for that to take hold and then for people to be open to other other things as well. So speaking of people going to Venice and experiencing these things, what are your latest, greatest recommendations? Uh, We're both fresh from Venice trips over the last few months. You've spent more time there than me, for sure. And probably a lot of listeners have even visited in person at least one time. But I, I hope that after having listened to us, they're excited about getting back and exploring this somewhat more 
guarded side of the Laguna that allows you to have a more dynamic relationship with food and beverage. Um, you've mentioned a, num- a number of names already, but what's your, let's say, perfect three-stop evening on a little kind of casual baccaro ta- tour? Oh, boy. So I really, really, really like Adriatico Mar, mm-hmm. which is in, I feel like it's the edge of San Paolo. Ah, you know where it is? Uh, it's right near Tonolo, the really delicious yes. um, pastry shop. Mm-hmm. And there... Uh, they do classic chiquetti. They also do little sandwiches yeah. and then are really focused on Malvasia, like mm-hmm. heavily focused on Malvasia. So you find Malvasia from all over the lagoon edges. Uh, and that's really, really fun to kind of dig into a single grape. Well, footnote, lots of different yeah, grapes. Yeah, I was just about to say <laughs> Malvasia is especially complicated because it has many iterations yes. and uh, both that are both different in terms of species, but then also uh, the different clones of each of those that makes it really exciting actually for exactly that reason. But yeah, also super complicated. <laughs> totally, totally. And then, you know, hop in the boat. Did I tell you I'm getting a boat? <laughs> are you are you telling me that I'm about to have a friend who has a boat? No, that's right. I cannot wait. Cute Lonely Island. Yeah, I was going to say, I have a series of jokes about this. Like, it's going to yeah. be in the Tiber, so it's not as cool as the lagoon. This, this summer, I'm going to spend so much time on social media on your boat. <laughs> JK, it's not in the Tiber. That's uh, actually super dangerous. Yeah, and illegal, yeah. <laughs> on every level. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a place called, this is not going to be news to anyone, Cantinone Giaschiavi, which is a super, super, super famous mm-hmm. place. Wine bottles line the shelves. You got tons of chiquetti. Uh, the crowds fill the street and the adjacent bridges, um, and that's just like such a such a fun place, yeah, uh, to hit. I really really uh, enjoy that. And then I'd hit a dinner spot, mm-hmm. focusing on Venetian snacks. I already named some of my favorite places. Mm-hmm. I love Alcovo. Um, if you are planning a trip this summer, book yesterday. Yeah, um, and they do. They also do like aperitivo, so you can have like a Negroni if you want, even though it's like a little heavier than an aperitivo for for Venetians. It's definitely a, a, let's say, Anglo-American drinking culture idea of it. Um, Or I've already talked about Vini da Gigio a hundred times, but I just, I really, 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 really love it. And that, you know, that list is places that are open in in the late afternoon to early evening, whereas my morning, because I, you know, when I'm developing recipes and researching, like I hit the Rialto market for a lot of stuff. Yeah. And of course, I'm going to go get a little bacala mantecato and an ombra at at Alarco in the morning. Yeah. Of course, I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, and so I've got my little like Rialto backstreets, cantina do spade sure, yeah. uh, situation. Grab my you know fried meatball and yeah, maybe that, a beer. I, like to change it up. Just to change it up. I yeah. know. No, I agree. And I think it's funny as you're saying, as, as you're listing these places that I uh, wholly agree on. I'm also realizing that it's it's so interesting to see a city like Venice, which um, as we brought up at the top, is a place that is the ultimate cliche, right? Loving it is like saying that you love chocolate or, <laughs> you know, for me, loving Dante. Love back rubs. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> I love being comfortable and loved. Um, and uh, and yet, 
Uh, it also has all of this weirdness of, about being a place that's very, that's literally off map, that's literally unnavigable according to the me- means of transport that we've all agreed upon in mm. the rest of the world. It's um, un- untouched in certain parts despite being wholly overwhelmed in others. So all of that kind of comes together to make Venice so intriguing. And the list that you've given of places you would go are equally reflecting that because you've got places that would be on anyone's map. If you Google quickly, where do I go to have a bite and a sip in Venice? The, you know, El Cantinone is going to be like right at the top of that. Uh, Alarco is going to be right at the top Mm -hmm. of that. But we're still going there. And then there are those places. I mean, I think Vinita Gigi is like probably not all that frequented by people outside of Venice. Um, But then, you know, I love like Cantinone. I would still Mm. say if I if I'm in Venice, I'm going to go get the uh, chiquetto, the kind of classic chiquetto there, which is tuna with bitter chocolate on it and a little glass of exactly the probably like least lovable suave by, you know, that is just whatever they're pouring for a, a euro 50 one, or two. Yeah. Or one year. I had or, a Pinot Grigio yeah, Ramacho the other day yeah. with the tuna. There you go. Yeah. And I was like, I'll take the one euro Pinot Grigio, Pinot Grigio. man. Yeah. Me up. <laughs> you guys seem really cool. Pour that out of a five liter bottle with <laughs> I don't no label tell on it. This. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, by the way, if you want to spend next to no money on wine, yeah. when you're walking around Venice between sites, you're going to see a lot of shops that are just selling tap wine yeah. and empty bottles, yeah. empty plastic bottles. Yeah, get and in so there. Get in there. Get your two liter bottle. It's going to cost maybe three euro 20 for your two liters of, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. white wine. Yeah. They'll certainly <laughs> have the great names on it, but they won't maybe be full of character, but they'll yeah. be very, very cheap um, and very super Venetian. Those are not tourist spots. Those are for, for locals who need to have affordable alcohol yeah, at home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think we should jump over to other parts of the lagoon. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Where else? Where else do you go if you're going to be in Venice? So everyone goes to Burano. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a super fan of Burano, TBH, but it's... I do love Gattonero. Yeah. And I always get off at Mozzorbo, which is the island attached to Burano, where there's a little trattoria called Maddalena. Okay. And years ago, when I was writing a book proposal, I took myself to Venisa, which is this, like very fancy hotel. Well, I think it's technically like a hostel from mm-hmm. like a license standpoint. But let's face it, it's a fancy hotel yeah, with like a yeah. you know Michelin level uh, cuisine. Mm-hmm. And I ate there and I was like, huh, that wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> so I took myself to second second dinner yeah. at La Maddalena and then just kept going back and eating the yeah. really, really delicious Venetian Lagoon classic, super unpretentious, super, super good. In Torcello, which has this stunning mosaic clad uh, Byzantine church, Cipriani mm-hmm. is an absolute classic. Yeah, That's a name you hear a lot in the lagoon. There are lots of like Cipriani establishments. Yeah, where else? Oh, there's a really good pace, place in Pelestrina, which is like, if you're on Lido, which is a really long island, uh, and then you keep taking a bus, the bus gets on a boat. Oh, yeah, It's yeah. so mm-hmm. lit. The bus gets on a boat, and it takes you to Da Celeste, which mm-hmm. is nearly towards the end of Pelestrina, where you can then also get off of the bus and onto another boat to go to Chioggia. Mm-hmm. So it's like a whole thing. But Celeste is bomb. And you're sitting in this really skinny island that you can easily, you know, walk across in literally two minutes. And you're looking at all of the 
like fishing pavilions on stilts, like the trabocchi that line the Adriatic coast. You're surrounded by fishing nets and it's just, it's so, it's still so wild there. Yeah. Um, and it's also where if you're, you know, spending some time in Venice and want to go to the beach, you could go to uh, the eastern facing side of the island and, and kick it in the in the Adriatic adjacent waters. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you ask Italians, you don't go to the beach anywhere within like 100 miles of Venice. But, <laughs> well, on the on the other side, once you get to the Eastern Peninsula, you can you'd be OK. But. I mean, yes, it is some of the most polluted air and water yeah. in all of Italy. Yeah. I still, I, I still listen, take a little dippers. Yeah. <laughs> Not gonna stop me. I'm from Jersey, baby. I was just about to say tri- in the eighties, tri-state area. Never forget, we were swimming in a, a body of water where New York City was still dumping all of its garbage until <laughs> biohazard. Who? Yeah, exactly. I don't know it her. Doesn't kill you. Makes you from New York. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Katie, I think that's a pretty nice roundup, actually, all things considered. There's a lot to dig into, and we'll no doubt come back to Venice, both literally and uh, via podcast. Uh-oh, I'm getting a signal from the booth, yeah. Can we do just one <laughs> little final word about polenta? Oh, yeah, we should, actually, yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you go to Venice, every menu at this point has spaghetti with clams and things that are just generically island foods right. or coastal yeah. foods, um, but the main carb of Venice and the Veneto, the mainland, was historically uh, polenta uh, made from uh, cornmeal that was not transformed in a way that made it truly healthy and digestible for the human body. And I recommend if you want to dive into that subject, uh, listen to our episode on corn, which digs into pellagra and just the sort of monoculture that transformed the the countryside of the Veneto and some of the surrounding regions as this um, produce from the Americas was introduced to Italian uh, culture several centuries ago and the impact that that had. Wherever you go in Venice, you're going to get some polenta. Sometimes it's uh, sort of oozing and soft and sometimes it's cut into rectangles and toasted and crispy. Um, And you'll find like sardine sore might be served on that or some uh, cuttlefish cooked in its ink or some almost like very buttery uh, baby shrimp uh, shelled and, and, and served on polenta. There, we did our polenta part. Yeah, so I'm glad. I'm so glad that you brought us back to that, Katie. And it is actually another episode that people really like to listen to. So if you're a patron, you have access to it on our website, which is golapodcast.com. And if you're not a patron, you can become one and get access to that by going to patreon.com backslash golapod. But in the meantime, we hope that you will be planning some travel, some safe travel to Italy, according to your ability to do so. And and according to Italy's ability to receive you, we don't know when these episodes drop. Um, sometimes the world is more on fire than others. And so uh, we hope that it will be useful to you. And we hope to see you in Italy while we're doing this wandering around eating and drinking. And I know, Katie, that after we've talked about this, I am desperate for a glass of wine and a snack. So Same. What a coincidence. <laughs> Um, In the meantime, let's just remind our listeners to catch up on all the episodes of this season. If you're even if you're not a patron, you can go back to the beginning of season four and hear everything we've talked about, including some of our first Go on the Road episodes in Calabria, Sicily and Abruzzo. And keep listening uh, to our new episodes as they roll out. We love you guys and we appreciate your support. 
We love our supporters. Thank you so much to our Giotti level patrons like Allison and Gina Ruggiero of Fiorella in Rochester and Gabe Del Virginia of New York City. We also want to thank Anthony Lombardo at She Wolf Detroit and Leah Ferrazzani at Semolina Pasta in Pasadena. 